Hey, everybody, welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, once again, we are talking about Denali. Last week, we heard about Sam Shaheen's Denali expedition, and this week, we are talking with Andrew Alexander King, who was on Denali shortly after Sam was. So, in this conversation, Andrew is going to share with us his experience of Denali, and he talks about some of the gear he used. And just before we dive in, I want to give you a heads up about our blister-recommended shop, Bentgate Mountaineering. Now, DPS just released several limited-edition skis, and they are all on sale at Bentgate. That includes the DPS Powderworks Whaler 115 RPC, the Powderworks Lotus 124, several other new skis, and you can get discounts on DPS Phantom Glide treatments. So all you have to do is head to Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or visit their website at bentgate.com to learn more. And with that, let's get to our conversation with Andrew Alexander King. Here we go. All right, well, Andrew, welcome back, but this time on our Gear 30 podcast. So I think we've now had you on our Blister podcast twice. We're branching things out to Gear 30, and um, we're going to talk about this uh, little trip to Denali that you recently took. Maybe my first question, how did this Denali trip come about? How long have you been thinking about Denali, and when did the sort of planning for this really begin? So to be honest, like the planning started in 20 or early 2020 and um it basically took into account my my promise to climb the highest mountain and the highest volcano on each continent to speak out against these issues from sexism racism climate change and um economical barriers part of the between worlds project i planned and we all know how plans are just a way of like you know, um, sometimes like if you plan too far in life, you know, there's other forces laughing at you. And so I wanted to do Elbrist before Denali. I honestly thought that my ability as a mountaineer needed more critiquing and more, you know, finessing and coaching before I touched Denali. But given the climate of COVID, I made the decision to go for Denali as well as, you know, give the chance to lay my grandmother's ashes to rest that passed away in that pandemic and, you know, really put her in a place since we didn't get a, a funeral as, um, as most people did during the pandemic time. So that's, that's what it was. So about, I would say about, about probably about a year and a half of planning and then training wise, you know, another year and a half, I train year round for what I have to do. So if you don't mind, on our first blister podcast, we talked more about the between worlds project, like in a lot of depth, we will include links to that conversation in the show notes to this episode, but anything else you want to say other than the, you actually gave a pretty nice succinct synopsis already here, but just for people who are like, wait, I, I haven't yet heard of the between worlds project. Maybe tell us, you gave kind of the succinct line for what it is, but maybe a word about, how that kind of came to be the between roles project. Yeah. Which by the way, Jonathan and I are our best friends, everyone. <laughs> so, so, you know, he has now, very few people know where I am in the world or have like my cell phone number. And he is one of those yeah. few people. It is I think you actually true. know where I'm, you actually know where I'm most of the than actually some of my close family members. That's how close it is. Just we, so you know that. We talk uh, a lot. We talk a lot. We, talk now. A lot. we scheme. We there's, talk a, a lot. there's a lot of scheming going on. A lot of scheme, <laughs> but but um yeah. So the Between Worlds project for me started six years ago, uh, and for for me, it's basically my promise to not just the countries I visit, but more to the future and those that come after, or actually start developing now. That you can be more than just a person that you know goes through a country and just take resources you know really asking the question let's be very intentional about where we go how we absorb 
learn from culture? How do we give back to those cultures and communities? And how do we elevate ourselves? So the Between Notes project is my way or my project that I developed with the help of many people um, and still am developing, in which self-funded for years until last year, uh, of a way of looking at nonprofits in each country I climb in to see how can I learn from them and stand with them, not only on the top of their summit, but on these issues that they face from day to day. And as long as I'm here and then set it up for the future for other people to do the same. So that's the Between World Project in a very small nutshell, but I hope to one day grow into a tree that others can really find shade and comfort under. Mm. So, I like it. Okay. And so we're again talking about Denali here. So as the Denali trip was coming up, talk a bit about your own preparation for this. You, you did not off the couch Denali. Right. No, and I don't. I do not off the couch Denali, and I don't off the couch any anything. Climb. I say <laughs> yeah. anything. Jonathan, as I, but I, I take I take my climbing training very seriously. Um, and by serious, I mean like I really enjoy. It. I find actually when people ask me like, "What's more fun, climbing the mountain or training?" I go, "I love training." It's like, I really love learning something new. I love pushing this vessel that I have, have a body in this lifetime to see where its its benchmarks are in different parts of my life. Um, but my training is, you know, it, it, it goes from climbing Mount Baldy in the morning to going down. Let's just go through a day. Yeah. So I do a early morning rise, drive, wake up, meditate, set my attentions for the day. Then I drive to Mount Baldy here when I'm home um, in the training. I call it Southern California, my training center. Head to Mount Bali, meditate, get down. That's usually a four and a half to five hour round trip climb for me. I'm off the mountain, then I'm heading to conditioning, which is weightlifting. It's just basically, you know, working with my coach at King Harper's Fitness. We're working on making sure that my body is in a good spot to, you know, have not the most muscle mass, but the most efficient muscle mass. From there, I head to the sports academy where we head into another one hour session of ISO. Isometric, I mean, isometric metric or muscle training. So working on slut pulling, so pulling 250 pounds up to 100 to 200 yards, um, up to what, three days to maybe four days a week. And so that's also working on abs. That's also working on, I was in full gear. So as we progress through it, getting used to my double boots, which, and all you do need triple toe boots or else you got to do over boots. Um, so that getting, used to using all my gloves and carabiners, getting used to as close as I can to fixed lines. After that, we head into now cardio, which is cardio usually sometime in the morning if Donnell is out there. So do some cardio, usually on the bike or a nice run on the beach or a surf, not an hour surf. And then I end it with rock climbing to get used to being up and above and used to my carabiners and my harnesses. Then that is in the day and meditation and catching up on work before falling asleep and waking up and doing it again four days to six days out of the week. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love it. It's fun. It's really fun. So <laughs> I don't know, man. I see these, I see these, you know, various photos of you and I'm like, man, do you even work out? <laughs> does he even work out like mm, those photos are photoshop for sure <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah. no pre pretty fit dude you're pretty fit dude but i will say this i will say this to anyone listening i did have an issue on denali i i ate a lot of of my snacks before i should have eaten all of my snacks so learn how to ration because huh. uh, i just would sometimes just chill in my tent and eat kit kats so um definitely don't do that don't chill and eat all the kit kats it sounds like you're you're not saying don't eat kit kats it's just saying ration the kit kats better or bring more <laughs> kit kats i would say bring more kit -Kats. okay Perfect. you gotta carry it but it, 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 you gotta carry it either way like in the cmc or down but either way it's just a just a note there yeah okay so denali you know you're planning for this talk a bit about who went with you on this expedition? Yeah. The service is Mountain Trip Services based out of Telerod, Colorado, and they are heavily known for the Alaska Range, very respected. So, Mountain Trip. And I had an amazing team lead, Yoshi. If you're listening to this, you're an amazing team lead. Another two other leads, um, co captains or co leads. Uh, and so, you know, Tom and Matt, they're very amazing, well educated very safety, probably one of the most safety guides I've ever been, you know, able to go with minus Melissa, 
my coach, who is amazing and the goat to me, and um, a few other people I've climbed with down south. But they are very knowledgeable. Uh, I would say when it came to learning, Denali is a very very harsh place. You are dealing with sun for a lot of most of the day, ninety percent of the day. It only goes down like a little bit from two to four, and then it pops back up. So you're in a very harsh environment with sun. You're in a very harsh environment with wind. You're in a very harsh environment with cold. So understanding your layers and just a harsh environment with your body pulling as much weight as it has to do daily. And so that, you know, mountain guide services were really, you know, amazing. And um, I think for me, they taught me so much about who and what I was and what I was missing and what I could learn. And I'm happy I went with them. They were probably, again, I stand by my statement saying, you know, Yoshi being a Asian American guy, female is very tough, very tough. But she is so respected on that mountain and she's so respected down in Antarctica. And I respect her and I will climb anywhere in this world with her and I would feel very safe in Antarctica or any Arctic mountain because for someone, what she does, it is a very amazing thing. Um, so that was the team I had. Um, I, you know, I still talk to the team like Yoshi. I plan on climbing with her in Europe next year and hmm. training with her because she's very nice. And I said, if I go down to, when I go down to Antarctica to do Benson and Sidley, I will be asking for her to be my guide because that is how much knowledge she had. And um, I call her Cap. I call Melissa's coach Yoshi's Cap to me. Got so. it. Talk to me about the start of the expedition, some of the logistics there. I mean, you had to get to Alaska. Is everything kind of going as planned? Any interruptions, any surprises along the way at the at the start? Oh. oh, wow. That's a great question. Uh, there's a lot. I mean, before even getting to Alaska, you know, so I was very fortunate to go up and train with M- Melissa coach in Washington on Baker. And so I wanted to gear check with her, you know, she, she's to me, she's a goat. And so I like training with her and she gets me who I am as a person. So we're up there and what we find out is, you know, my boots, my boots have a, the running zipper. Sometimes the, the zipper would come out. And, um, for me, I had to really look into that. And so I'm glad I got to train with Melissa on Baker. Cause I found out how to deal with that. With my boots zippers also, really had to stack my rig um for me i've never been in a harsh environment as denali i've done a lot of altitude i've been privileged enough to do so much altitude high altitude climbing you know like you know there's Cotopaxi, there's you know pico de zaba there's so many that i've done and i didn't really have to rig up so much on my harness for that it's very like a two-day trip or one-day trip sometimes for me but working with Melissa to really understand what I needed, um, that was good because when we found out about the boot, I knew how to like handle that. You know, Melissa wasn't kind enough to really get someone to send me over over boots for my double boots because you need, I mean, a pretty strong. Traditionally, you could get away with a, a, a double boot, like you know, the places like in Aconcagua and such. But Denali is super super cold because of how far it is and how close it is to the Arctic Circle. And so in those, in those winds, I go, they're very harsh. Um, so that overboot is needed for my, for my double boot because I don't have that triple boot layer to it as you traditionally would from other brands. Um, so that was one thing. So again, if you don't have a triple boot, you do need an overboot. And those are very, very key because when you put your crampons on, that changes everything about your crampons. And so us going through that and dialing that in, what I found out is my, my overboots were too big. They weren't dialed enough, and that really changed how my crampons ergonomics worked with my steps. And that's a very that's a thing that you really want to get dialed. And as everyone says this, before you step on Denali, because a when you get to Denali, there's there's no rescue coming. You're it. You could like probably barter with other you know teams on the mountain that are coming down but you know most of the time that gear is staying with them so i got really lucky to really find over boots that really connected on our team and i just switched with them but also when you're when you're going up the last the cache at 16 and getting to the higher ridge to go to the fourth and final camp at 17 you're going up a fixed line so you really want to make sure that those over boots trap those crampons perfectly because the last thing you want to do is be on a fixed line and your crampon comes undone which was a big concern about me. Um, so we kind of, we nailed that one down. 
the second part was just really understanding, you know, going up with an 800 meter feather parka is one thing, but you really, you really need more in some of those in the, in that condition. And I was like, my parka is really had like a lot, like hot with like my gear was my black diamond, heavy parka, my black diamond vest. I had my, um, underlayers or my base layer was again, um, BD as well. And that, that was, the, that base layer is, I love it the most. It was the, it was the most easiest one to have. Um, also to wear it and, you know, as far as fast wicking, it was great. It didn't ever stench. Well, as much as I know, stench wise and arise from it. Um, or at least you your, know, your I, crew was really polite and didn't say anything. I mean, you if anyone's talking to you about smells in denali then you probably should just reassess where you are (laughs) you are on a glacier and let's just say this a cmc is where you go to the bathroom and you're shoveling your tent and your mess hall every day so every other day so um but gear wise i used you know you know my bd harness which was great for that really lightweight you want a lightweight harness that's really good for you you need you, multiple gloves. I think you want some pretty good garden-like gloves that are pretty good le- leather gloves because when it comes to using your carabiners, you don't want to have to fool around too heavily with big, thick gloves. Like you want to be able to unlock and lock your carabiners because a Denali, that is what you use often. Um, that's something we figured out. So that was good to do with Coach, you know, how my gloves were, how to use them. That became key. We'll talk about that later. Uh, what else was there? I take 130 million, 130 liter bag from Cedar Summit, one of my sponsors as well. And I was able to pack, I packed actually, and I think you saw this, John, I packed all of the gear that I needed packed into that 130, 130 liter bag. So everything that when you go through a list for Denali, everything fit in there. And I did a photo of it in my living room and everyone was like, I have two bags. And I was like, well, where's your, I was your sleeping bag. Where's your pads? I was like, Everything fit in 130 liter seat on my back. And my backpack was empty. All I had was like my computer for work while I was traveling. And that was it. And it was just like, and I carried my helmet on the plane with me and I carried my helmet everywhere. So I was taking Hazel, sis, love you over there across the pond. I took her helmet. So Hazel um, from BD, I took her helmet because she really, to me, like I told her, she really was someone that talked about mental health issues and like how she felt as an athlete and like her and other issues from like, you know, body and like performance. And I really thought that is something that was really special, and, you know, for someone as her caliber and so very accomplished in the climbing world to really speak upon that. And so I had that as my helmet and um, great helmet really make sure you lock it in and you got to make sure it's standard because you don't use your helmet as you cross the crevasses daily, but you do use your helmet as you do take the fixed lines up. And then you do come around windy corner that some of that rock can blow down and hits you, which we did see rock fall. Um, and I did take a pretty big ice chunk to the head. Huh. So when and where was that? Uh, so we we're coming down from caching on 16. And as we're, you know, coming down, as anyone that's ever been on Denali hearing this, as you're coming down, you, you should be using your command going up and coming down. You're hearing your commands of, you know, clear, you know, anchor, which is basically you're switching out. So when you get to the sermon, like, you know, you get to your last picket of the line, you need to switch up your ascender to go over the other side of it and move through it. Um, and so I was down at the bottom because we had to Yoshi's in the back. And then we had one of my team members in the middle. And as I get down to anchor, I turn and look up to them and they're all coming down. And I think a team behind it just kicked a part of ice and it just really just hit me right in the middle of the head. And I had my, you know, uh, my bond zipper, uh, snow, like my snow, snowboarding goggles on, which were really great. And i God, it was weird because the guess where just a little bit of the opening was, the ice just hit me right in the middle of the head. It was kind of weird. Um, but that's why you wear a helmet because if that helmet wasn't on and you think about like physics, it's rolling downhill, someone's kicking it, that could knock you unconscious or give you a concussion and that's game over at that point. So that that's basically it. And as far as issues went, the issues mainly were, it was issues, <laughs> I wouldn't say issues, but it was Denali for me was, I didn't know until I got on the glacier if it was going to happen. And then I also didn't know what was going to happen until we actually got, and we can talk deeper about this. So we got to camp three, um, but like finding the funding, you know, when we first met, I didn't even have funding 
there was it was all self-funded and i didn't even have no i didn't have sponsors signed on to anything yet at that time because people thought like oh he's just gonna like you know fade off and stuff but you know people like yourself and very few at the time really didn't (laughs) get how well you got it but other people really didn't understand like how determined i was and like what kind of individual i was um and so that was a little tough, you know, find the funding. So I saved up a lot of money, took out of my savings to really, you know, just get it going and just have good faith that something would work out, which, which it did. And, and the next step was, you know, getting the proper gear and getting the proper training for it. The training that's in the gym that we just discussed, that is one thing, but really getting the proper rope management training. Um, a lot of times, you know, Denali did expose what I needed to work on, which is my better rope management skills, you know, and I was really lucky. I had again, the mountain trip team, their mountain trip guide services. They were really amazing. And Yoshi and, you know, Matt and, you know, um, Tom are very patient with me on some things that I, again, someone that self-taught himself how to like, how, how to, to climb and do these mountains. Denali to me is that is college for mountaineering. And that's where I learned a lot of things of like you're using, when you bring your eight carabiners, you're using all of them. So don't, I would say this on anyone here. When you go to do Denali, do not skip on bringing none of any of your lock-in carabiners. You know, there should be four. I think there's four locked and there's four non-locking and you use all of them. You use mostly when you do your backpack harness, which I still have my rope on my backpack actually. Hmm. <laughs> Cause that's my expedition pack back. And it's like, you need it to have, okay, your backpack on it, like your backpack lock in in case you fall in a crevasse, which we'll talk a little bit about later. You have one just for your sled to be attached to your bag, which then is attached to your harness, which then, and then you have your non-locking, which is basically to have one for your brake on your sled. Cause when you're going downhill, you don't want that sled to be a runaway sled, which that's a pretty, a lot of things that happens up there. Um, then you also want to make sure when you're doing your, you know, tying down your sled you're having carabiners to lock in certain points such that you might have to carry a shovel for the team for the cash so all of those carabiners you do need and you do need to know how to take and off your locking ones without touching it with your skin so um i would say leading up to it a lot of that i knew of i knew about but i didn't know as in-depthly as it wasn't done because you don't you don't the more time you need someone to help you with it, the more time you're taking away from the overall team and progressing forward. And that's, you don't want to be dealing with things in that harsh condition because five minutes can be the make or break from a window of weather. So I would say those are the things I've, you know, challenges fest with. And then COVID as usual, because though I'm vaccinated, you didn't know if you got COVID or not until you landed in Anchorage because you had to test again. And if you got COVID, you basically are off the mountain and off the expedition. And one person on the mountain got COVID hmm. and they had to get taken out of the mountain. So that's, that's my long winded answer to all those questions. So, wow. So yeah. Couple comments. One, the reason obviously that you managed to fit everything into your sea to summit bag, cause you didn't bring enough Kit Kats. That is true. Right. That is true. Everybody. That's, one, bring that's, one, that's one point. <laughs> Second, I, you know, last week, um, as I told you, we recorded on Gear 30 a conversation with our reviewer, Sam Shaheen, who was on Denali yeah. just before you. And it's so funny hearing you talk about the parka because in the conversation with Sam, he literally was like, my parka became my best friend. And he was just like, I mean, we all know Sam is weird, but he made a pretty compelling case for like, yeah, okay, that kind of checks out. And um, it sounds like you would share yeah. a similar sentiment with Sam about like, you don't want to mess up on the parka. There's certain things you don't want to mess up on. And I'll just run you through. You want to make sure you have a good layering system. I would say anyone going on. Here's the thing about Denali. And I will be back on this mountain. And I plan on being in harsh environments or as equal to harsh environments as my career of mountaineering expands on and i do these projects um your layering system is so key you could be very cold but the thing is if you're sweating while you're moving and the moment you stop 
you can get hypothermia, get instant sick. And so I had to really master my layering system, which part of that is with, uh, you know, your parka when you get up to higher altitude and when to have it on. You know, for me, I sweat a lot when I'm moving. Like I'm a pretty, like I have a lot of muscle and obviously that's that's going to be like a an easy, I call it an easy bake oven or something. It's just so hot all the time. So like I'm just, so for me, like some days I would have on, it's my BD. It was my BD pretty much shell. It's not a shell, but it's a, it's an amazing, um, lightweight down. And it was pretty, pretty great. Cause it had like wind protection on it too. Uh, it wasn't light. It wasn't, you know, too thin to protect the wind when it got harsh. And all I do was put that on or take it off. And I had my, my base layer and my, um, I'm looking at it right now in front of me in my, uh, my vest. That was it. And then my hoodie, I then had a beanie or my hat that covered my face. Um, and my sunglasses, those, and then I had some pretty insulated pants. My pants were insulated, but where I'm going with this with the parka is as you ascend to 17 and above or 16, as far as we got, those winds get pretty brutal up there. So now like, and also Denali is fair. It's very cold. Like it's colder. It People say it's like, it sometimes gets colder than Everest because how it's how far, because Everest is still closer to the equator than Denali is. It's just higher in altitude. But I think that's where your parka comes into key because 60 miles per hour winds, we had some days at the summit that were coming that they said, like, that's instant frostbite. If if skin is exposed at that level of altitude and with that, you know, that level of cold and like wind chill, you're going to experience some um, harsh, pretty, you know, consequential, negative consequential, like, impact to your skin yeah you also talked about gloves and how you actually weren't rolling with super super warm super thick burly gloves sam and i didn't actually i don't think he and i talked about gloves much at all so yeah how did you strike that balance because right I, i i get it like if you got a massive massive set of oven mittens you know on the one hand you might start just sweating like mad with those but they also would have no dexterity and so when you do need to be fumbling around with carabiners or whatever not a great formula it sounds like to go from like super sweaty hands to go you know have to pull off tell me more about your your glove system or what kind of liner system you were using or whatever the truth is i actually used um i use my liners for my everyday usage at first, uh, you know, I had my big burly ones at first, like my, cause I, again, I, my, I had a really big fear and this is going to be very transparent with everyone. Like I was really afraid of Denali. No joke. Like I was really afraid and I still am of that mountain. I think of any, like not, not like it was giving me nightmares, but Wendy corner did give me nightmares after watching YouTube videos on it. Not gonna lie. But when it came to using gloves, I wanted to have the gloves that really kept my hands protected. Uh, and I would say that was pretty much my medium sized gloves. And then my liner gloves would fit into them. But I use those later on to be mostly for just, um, mostly for just day to day use. And then also like when it's really hot, when you're going up like motorcycle hill or you're going up like to the polar field, you don't really want someone that's sweating because when your hands start to sweat and you do like stop, it's, it is uncomfortable and they're hard to dry out. So my system was more of that. I just had thin gloves on and that's what's it. Yeah. Thin liner gloves. And then I just use those and then I went to my big ones. I only use my mittens Actually, I used my mittens once, my big, big snowboarding mittens once. And um, after that, I really didn't use them anymore because my liners and my medium side gloves just did the trick for me. You know, I just really made sure that I stayed moving. The moment you're not moving, you know, you start to get cold and that circulation starts down. Like your extremities really start to get hard to heat up. But I just really had that kind of system going. The, the burly ones are hard, but I've heard that if you have like, you know, leather garden gloves are good for the winds as well. So, I would say this to anyone, um, frost, frost nip is a thing. So really taking being, even if the sun is out, you don't. And this is what captain taught me. And she was saying this, like, even if you take your fingers out of your, your, 
gloves or liners when the sun's out and you start messing with like your carabiners or something, that's a pretty bad habit to be get into because what you're then going to do is you're going to do the same thing on a windy day or something and you're not going to think twice about how how that metal is going to conduct and give you frost nips or even worse frostbite on the tips of your fingers. And, um, you know, so that, that's, that's how I got the glove system down is really just find out, you know, day to day what worked for me, then the gear I was working because at lower altitude, you, you really just, you're, you're walking and it's pretty warm at that lower altitude from camp, from base camp to camp, depending on what time you're to go to be very accurate, what time of year you're going. So this Denali trip for me was in July end of june july um and so it's very warm so i'm not having to deal too heavily with you know being too bundled up on those areas because it's pretty warm at that point but from from base camp to camp one you really are you know moving fairly often it's pretty flat and hopefully the winds are not that brutal but um but yeah so that's how i did it let's talk more about is it more or less smooth sailing up to like camp 14 or let's cover that and then we'll kind of do pre-14 and post-14 denali is not smooth sailing <laughs> that's the right answer this was a test is- you passed <laughs> yeah. denali is called the mountain of patience because it's definitely you got to be very patient so we you know again yoshi being the 12-time climber of that mountain and you know being a amazing mountaineer and guy that she is in the arctic and such she knew that as soon as we flew in we had to rest for not even a full day at base camp we got up the next morning and started to move to camp one because we were going to get stuck in a storm if we didn't and we got stuck there for two days heavy blizzard came and just dumped a bunch of snow on us i just dumped it right then and there and i was having the best time of my life i was loving it and the reason i was loving it is because what I started to find out about myself is how, you know, again, doing high altitude mountains and doing them for very short periods of time, I all had to do, I thought I started to get at that point, how to really find my loop. I call it, it's a loop when you're in a, when you use something for a long period of time, when you start something new, it seems so long, you know, when you're going, think about when you went to school for the first time, as a child, if you can, or high school, and you're like, why is school so long and boring? It's because you're learning something new and your brain is like having to pattern recognize it. Over time, you'll get to it. And that's why as you become an adult, you see that time moves exponentially faster. But again, it's it's not moving any faster than it was when you're a child or than when you're an adult. It's just that you have now become into a loop and you're moving through it with consistency and you're not having to think about like, oh, this is hard. But if you were to pick up a book and like, let's say you don't know physics or chemistry and you had to learn that, it would seem like your days are longer. That being said, as I'm going through Denali, you're, I have to learn systems. So the first few days seem pretty long to me because I'm sitting there being like, oh, this is how you rig your, this is how you rig your sled. On no other mountain in the world have I ever had to rig a sled, which by the way, I do not have children. But uh, I learned what it's like to care for something so lovely that does not speak to you per se, <laughs> but you don't want it to disappear along your journey. Because if it does, you are screwed and you'll be very sad. And I was like, I was like, huh, I guess, is this what it was like for my parents? Huh. Huh. Maybe. I don't know. Not saying that any child is a slut. Just being very clear there. I'm just saying, now I know it's like a Tamagotchi is probably better. Anyway, but like, if you know what that is, you'll know. But taking care of that sled daily and, you know, um, and day out really taught me how to be very intentional about what and I was doing. Like every clove hitch, every knot, every way to tighten, every way to take out slack, how to do that. And I was just like, this is nothing I've ever had to do ever with a, a sled. Like for me, sled is a sled. You go down in some snow with it and you say, we make some snowmen. Um, so that first few days was really long learning those systems continuously over and over and making sure that did I have my right strap on? Did I have my, you know, carabiners locked in the right place? You know, making sure that as you're walking in that the, the, the knots are the same per se. You're learning the pace of the team. And by knots, I mean like you're using your figure eights. You're going to be using those. And the team that you're with may do some kind of different standard of rope management, but it's fairly the same across the across it. But those are things you I had to learn. 
and really just be like, these are things that keep not me safe, but also the people I care about on this expedition, which is everybody. So the first day was, you know, just through the, through the like lowlands going through just beautiful, um, got to camp one, got blizzard in, made a snowman. Then we cashed, cashed up on halfway to second camp two. Um, and it was beautiful. And I was like, Oh, we're cashing and going up, going up a hill. Like for me, I, like I told you my workout schedule, I was so used to working out for very strenuous for what sometimes 12 or more hours a day sometimes. So when I was just like, Oh, we just need to keep walking slowly. I was just like, cool, sweet. (laughs) So I was like this, this is vacation for my body at this point. Um, and then what I learned is that when I got there is too, is I was training with 250 pounds, pulling 250 pounds. The most I ever had in my sled at any point was probably like hundred if that, and then like, you know, maybe like 60 or 40 on my back. So my body was just like, this is so easy to walk with. It was just like the, the, the sled was like walking a dog to me. It was just like, this is so easy. I can like, so again, the training worked and, um, you know, going up to cash was fun. And I think that's when people thought I was really weird. Cause I was just like smiling a lot and just smiling, like not in any pain <laughs> and just enjoying every moment of it, looking around, just taking photos. Cause it's really beautiful. And then when you keep going, you get to camp two, camp two is, you know, it's pretty up there. We got stuck in another, you know, another system came through and it just got really hard to see as we're moving. Cause we knew if we didn't move from one to two at that point, we were going to get stuck again with another system. And it was a beautiful journey. We just kept walking and just kept walking step by step and got to camp two, set up our tents, which was great. And then camp two, you're about, I think at 11,000 at that point, some change that's when things get real because you're going up motorcycle hill, you're going up squirrel hill, you're going through the polar fields, you're going through the infamous windy corner, which again, walking around windy corner is, it is pretty scary. not going to lie because though we had no wind, your sled is pulling you down towards that crevasse and you have to just let it go, not in it, but you have to let the rope you know, just do its thing. And so that's kind of hard to sometimes, and you have to have the core strength to really have the ability to pull that while ex- like, ex- like traveling up at that elevation. So that, that was the journey for me. And when we got to 14, we call, I called it the resort because everyone's there. Every, mm-hmm. I call camp camp three is a resort because everyone is up there. When you get to camp three, it is beautiful. Um, and it was just amazing like you just look out and you can see uh, when you go to um in the the edge of the world you can see how far you come because it shows you mount hunter and the entire way you came up and so it's kind of crazy for you to see the journey you took and then we also got to see the crevasses opening and the lakes of water just pools of water just opening up from a distance be like we got to cross that again to get home but that that was it that was really most of it um really using snowshoes until you get to camp two and then at camp two, you cash your snowshoes with along with other things. And then you switch to crampons because you're now going up very, very inclined hill, like pretty steep inclined hills. Um, so yeah, I used to use my BD Sabertooth um, and they were great. I really enjoyed those crampons because they were just killer. And again, like I think the cool part about mountain trip and the team I had is like, they're just really knowledgeable and everything that I thought was great that I learned and taught myself over the years. They taught me to do it the right way. And that's what I wanted to go there and do. I wasn't, there, two, there was two objectives. Well, three, if you think of it, three. One was, the first one was making sure that my grandmother, who passed away last year, was able to be, you know, rested in a place that is beautiful and that represented not just what she was to us and my friends and family, but, you know, a place that really is higher than any of us most of us would be and then two was to really just learn like melissa coach just taught me she was like andrew you go there with no ego and you just learn fall in love with all of it and she was so right about it It really i feel like 
And I think that's why now I feel like I'm the best, I'm at the best place mentally in my life because I now was able to learn what it meant to be a mountaineer. I don't call myself, I don't say, Hey, I'm a mountaineer. I say, I'm learning to be one after all the mountains I've even climbed because that was college. I was like, that's your freshman year of college. And the third was summiting, which we couldn't do, unfortunately, because of weather conditions. But we'll talk more about But yeah, that's that's a journey. Okay. A while back, you mentioned falling into a crevasse. And you Punch said hole. we would talk about that <laughs> later. You, you <laughs> have been hit in the head by a, you know, kind of a ice chunk. Did you also fall into a crevasse? No, I punched through a punch, like a punch hole, you know, where you cut through. And so I'm walking and it wasn't fall in. It's like you punch through. And so we're walking across, rocking up Squirrel Hill. And I just click into it. I just, my right leg just goes down. And it goes right down. And I'm just like, look, I look at Cap and I turn around and I go, all right, cool. And I just go this, bloop, pop myself. I was like, we're good. Like the, it just went straight down. And that moment was pretty nerve wracking a little bit. And this is why I think again, why my mind is in a different place now is because that was one of the scariest things I thought would happen to me besides like really falling in like a hundred percent. And, um, but when you feel like there's no, there's nothing under you, like, I guess the only way to feel from is go sit on your coffee table take your left or right leg and let it dangle off. And there's nothing under you. Right. Like you're just sitting there. Like there's nothing. Under. Now, now do that with like, probably 150 pounds of gear if that just on you and if you lose your cramp on it's game over because it's gone and so when that happened i i was just like oh my gosh like there's just darkness down there and, and i just popped out and i said crevasse but what cap taught me or yoshi taught me later on is she said if you look across you know the eyes you can see that you know it's running along a crevasse and like it's just you just I made a mistake, just punched through, which I didn't know because it's covered up. You punch through to that like empty layer line. So that that's basically it. Um, it wasn't anything too dramatic. Anyone, our team got really lucky that no one fell into a crevasse and um, per se, like deeply, I guess if you want to call that punching through, but no one was really like in one. I think one team fell into it on the way, but we didn't see it, but yeah. So you didn't sum it. And we talked, you know, Sam's group and Sam was very, very, very clear about this. Like they did manage to summit and he's like, man, we, in addition to, uh, you know, you make a lot of good decisions along the way up, but he's like, man, the weather and the weather windows are so fickle on Denali. He's like, Uh, he's like, we caught one of the best weather windows. Like you most people on Denali just don't luck into the kind of weather windows that they happen to catch. And, um, well, that was his experience. You guys didn't catch the, you know, the magical weather window. And so was that pretty much it? It just, that was the story there. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, we got to, we got, honestly, we got to camp three fourteen camp like with so many contingent these days, we had so many, we had about eight, eight, no, eight or nine, maybe eight. I think eight contingent days when we got there. And for those, we used all eight of them just to sit and wait. So when we got there, we cashed beautiful day. A few, uh, like a few people that knew me came off the mountain. They're like, Hey, I just summoned. I was seeing people just summon and come off as soon as we arrived at Camp three, camp 14 or the resort. We get there and everyone's there and it's pretty sunny, but you know, just to give clarity to people too, that, and I, we had to break this down and thank you, Yoshi, for really clarifying this. Sunshine doesn't equal summit weather. Just a very, very clear thing. That wind you can see just dusting off the top of Tenali, which means it's a very, very windy. It's extremely, when you see that, you see that snow just, making that um, wind brush out the top in other places. So when we were there, we went back down, we did a back carry, got our stuff from the cache we did prior to moving to the resort. And then we cached again on 16. After we did that cache on 16, which by the way, 
our stuff is still stuck on 16 because we couldn't get it off because of avalanche safe, safe, like concerns and safety, we, we were just getting dumped on by snow. If it wasn't getting dumped on by snow, we were getting dumped on by winds. And so even if we were to move up to high camp, which is 17, the last camp, and then you wake up and move, there was one team that did it. Actually, there was two teams that did it, and they went all the way up there, and they couldn't summit. They got stuck and had to come right back down. And, you know, this is where I knew in my heart already that, like, Yoshi and Mountain Trip was such a good team to go with because they didn't move us. They let us sit there, and everyone in our certain people in our team were like, why are we not moving? And I was just like, thank you, Yoshi, because if you did move with all of your gear up to 17, going through the fixed lines, going up that long line, carrying all that stuff, and you made it to 17, and you still couldn't summit, you have to come right back down. And that is not pretty efficient. Like we go when we have more than at least more than like at least three days or four days to get up there and get back. Contingency day to add it in. And you know, we didn't have that. We just it didn't work out that way. And people on the team, you know, were like, we should go, we should go. And I'm sitting there being like, we should not go. It just dumps snow and like the Autobahn is a it's 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 an it's like it's a flat it's like a surface that's just gonna like it all that snows up there which it was and you're walking through that breaking trail it's just one small incidence on that autobahn trail like it's just that's an avalanche concern you know and so for us i i knew by day two in my heart that we're probably not going to do it by day two of eight, I knew we were probably not. Yeah. And I wanted to keep, I kept sitting there like, you know, she'll let us in, she'll let us in. But like, I went back to my tent and I remember just meditating. I was like, this is it. Like, we're not, we're not getting in because this is what she, like she does. Mother nature does. I'm like, mm, this is not going to let us in. I've like, I'm sitting here being like, cause you have to have at least four days. Right. So if we're on day two and we have multiple systems coming in, looking at the weather report, then we know right then and there that we're probably not getting up there. And um, people wanted to fly up there, which is not considered mountaineering, by the way. So if you're listening to this and you think you could just do that, don't, don't do that. There's just, you know, the summit to me at that point, the summit doesn't reflect. It only shows you the reflection of who and what you are from the journey. That's all it shows you. There is no treasure chest. There is no, you know, selfie stick that puts you on magazines or gives you something that someone else hasn't got. It just shows you the reflection of who and what you are. And so for me, at that point, after like, you know, spreading my grandmother's ashes, um, I knew it was, it was, that was the end of that journey. Like I came there to learn. I came there to put someone that I love at peace. And I came to summit, but summit would only, it wouldn't have changed anything. It would still be, I would still be there. And I, I looked up at it. I was like, yeah, out of all the mountains I've climbed, this is one of the very few that I'm not going to summit. But at that moment, I learned what it meant to be a mature climber and mountaineer. And that means knowing when to come home and be safe and to when to tell people about the story. Because if you can't sit around the campfire and have jokes about it, like we're doing right now, then it wasn't a success. And I think that's for me is where I looked at it as like, no one would have, everyone would have been like, okay, Andrew, we expect you to get to these top of these mountains. But in my heart opinion, I was like, I felt more relieved that I didn't. I felt very happy that I pushed it. And like, I always say this, like I've always compared myself every year to who I was last year. And I always say, and then on the 31st, December 31st of every year, I imagine sitting down at 11 o'clock with Andrew Alexander King from last year. And we're sitting down at the table and we both write down everything that we did that year. And we look at each other as like what we did. And if I, if the one, if, if me from last year says, holy shit, you kicked a lot of ass, then I'm on the right path. And the moment I got to the resort and the moment I did that for my family is the moment I'm like, I definitely kicked my ass last year. So that that's, and I'll go back and do it. It's not, I definitely will do it again after everything. And I will go back and finish this, 
climbs, like when I'm done with Everest, I will end this project and this journey on Denali. And the growth between now and then I'm really excited for. And it doesn't change the mission. It just it basically solidified like if you really were about peaking or peak bagging, then that's all I would have cared about. But right. I cared more about other things. So, yep. And I think it's, that was a great articulation of the mindset and the rest. And I think that man in certainly in the backcountry ski world and in the Alpine climbing world. Yeah. It's, it's, I think becoming maybe more, common for us to be like oh yeah you know the summit it's not about the summit but like we can't pay lip service to that right as i've been thinking about this so much just in the backcountry ski world we just have to be operating by admittedly they are our own individual codes but we need to really be responsible to certain codes and so my goal here is not to police everybody that might make a different judgment than than you would have made or I would make it in some situation, but I really hope it becomes more common. I mean, like it was last week, Sam was like, yep, we got to summit. It's not because we took unnecessary risks. We read Mm -hmm. the situation and the situation allowed us to continue. And what you just got done saying this week is we read the situation and in this case, it was Mm -hmm. not the right move. And I'm like, awesome. Two different people had two different experiences on Denali Mm -hmm. and they were wonderful in their own way. And I, I really hope that we just continue as a, I guess, kind of an alpinist community. That's just right. That's the, (laughs) that's the right answer. And it's not merely peak bagging as you, so all that is just underscore everything you just kind of said, but I, I think that's really important. And I hope we just continue to roll more and more that way. You know, right. I will. I will. I think I already said this to like every sponsor and person like yourself, anyone that comes along. I'm like, there's a strong chance that I can only control what I can control. Right. I always say my attitude is my altitude. So I already knew like, again, that I was like, I've seen these situations before. This is a very high volatile weather mountain It's very volatile completely. And I could have just sat there and moped in my tent and be like, oh man, I promised everyone that I'll get my grandmother to the top. But like when we spread those ashes over the edge of the world, and I'll just say this, we walked out there at 11 o'clock at night. It was really cloudy and I'm crying the entire step of the way because I'm about to say goodbye to someone that I've loved my entire existence. And that was, she was the main reason why I woke up every day at 5 a.m. to push myself to train harder than I've ever have. And so saying goodbye to her, I, I thought to myself, by me doing this, because I never got to say goodbye to her when she died or before she was cremated or a funeral. So this was it. And as I'm walking, I'm just bawling. I'm bawling the entire time, you know, in the rope. And like, you got like the, the guys that are just like amazing enough to walk me out there this late. And it's late at 11 o'clock at night, you freeze. Like things are freezing at like when sun goes down, just period, just letting you know. And um, we get to the edge of it. And as I open up the the you know the case she's been in my pocket the entire time and it's cloudy i just say goodbye and the clouds part and it sounds really like superficial but like everyone turned around like we're like did you guys just see what just happened i was like that's probably coincidental and they're like maybe and i was like or she just likes it here and and at that point i was just like it it, it is and isn't about you you know if you're looking for something at the top of that summit it's already within you it's already within you at that point. You just have to recognize it and come to terms with it. The summit will only like, think about it. If you think about all we do, we train for years, for months, for hours, for minutes, just to have a few seconds at the top of that. Right. But add it all up. It's already there. The key is just waiting to be turned. And I think as soon as, as soon as I hit me, I was just like, this is where I knew I was like, it's not worth risking the lives of myself or someone else, or even pressuring a guy that knows more than me to do something and do that to her. I was like, I'm not going to do that hundred percent. And I backed Yoshi and that team there. I was like, I was like, Yoshi, what do you want to do? You're the guy. And she told us exactly what to do. I was like, we were one of three teams left at the resort on the glacier besides the national park service, which love you guys, by the way, NPS, you guys are amazing. Um, but 
at that point, you're sitting there being like, if we don't get off this mountain, we have a long journey ahead of us. And it's not about us running out of food, which we only had two more days of food left. It's also about the crevasses opening. They're like, the, the glacier is opening up from weather, like from heat in like the summer. And we, when we got to base camp and got around the 48 other people, every other, I think it was like 48 people. I might be wrong, but we are 48 people that did not summit when we all met up there and other teams left before us and they were still stuck at base camp waiting to get flown out two days prior. And we already were not, you know, and I think that's where we sit back and think about it. Like, okay, we get to the top and there are people really like trying, like, we should go to the top. I'm like, no, because you can't guarantee you'll get back down safely. So you get to the top, it, you have to get us home too. So like, it's not worth it. And I was like, I know we all paid. I know we all went through our dues. Like, we you know, we all struggled to get here, but like, maybe the summit wasn't really where we need to find ourselves. Maybe it was in this moment to do it. And that's very like, you know, spiritual and, and such, but I truly do believe, and I'll say this for me and hold me accountable to it, which I hope you will. And I've been saying this entire time, climbing these 14 mountains and other training mountains, it's not a given. It's not a given. It's a, it's a, it's a vehicle, but things can go wrong anytime. And I want to come home and be an old dude. Like I said to you, when I first did this, like I plan on being the old guy on the beach that no one knows watching pipeline masters, you know, and being like, what's this ice axe for? And I'm like, Oh, you know, there's some things I used to do back in the day. Like that's, that is basically, or maybe make my ice axe my cane at that point, but I don't know. That'd be legal. <laughs> but like, but like, that's, that's what I think about. Like, because I can't do this and I, I can't do this if I'm dead, you know? And, and I think at that point I learned to take, not to take unnecessary risk, you know, like, and I was, I think about this a lot now, even like rock climbing and training. I'm like, do I need to go do a 511B right now at this? Do I need to do that? And they're like, yeah, no, I'm like, no, I really don't. Like, I, I'm not saying I, I know where to push myself, but like, there's a line you do it. And, um, Denali taught me so much. It taught me more than I ever thought. And I think that place will not only be connected to my family and my and the legacy of our family, but it will be connected to me always because it really humbles you so much that you have to recognize who you are or you'll break. I appreciate you filling us in on the details. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, man. No worry. Yeah. It's great to hear the story and, and I think really cool to hear like we said, Sam last week, talk about his experience. You this week, talk about your own. And I think you guys have given us, a, you know, collectively a really good sense of what it's like and what it's kind of about and some different mindsets in your mm-hmm. two, you know, respective experiences of the place. And so I um, really appreciate it. Have you figured out what's next? I know there are a lot of of possibilities for you. And so you might still be in the not yet and that's fine, but I can't even remember at this point if you're already kind of homing in. Oh, you know me, Jonathan, very well. You know me that I'm already thinking chess moves. Yeah. Chess Chess moves. moves. So I'm already, chess moves. So I'm already thinking, um, so the next one up is Kilimanjaro. So that's at the end of this year. It's called the road to Kilimanjaro. There will be four mountains, sorry, four volcanoes, three mountains and two big wave surfing places. And that is the next one up. So I'll be doing, let's just say this, the highest mountain I'll be doing in the next five months is not Kilimanjaro. And so Kilimanjaro is like one of the seven, but I've decided to incorporate who and what I am. Denali taught me life is short, fast, beautiful, sad, dark, light cold and hot all in the same day. And I think doing this to the best of my ability to find people like yourselves and really go out and really learn from different cultures and people and really the backs, the roots of what I do this for is surfing the ways of life and change, diving into like myself and other cultures and deep conversations. I have no, I don't know anything about. And then summiting to different places internally or externally on mountains or volcanoes. And so for me, the road to Kilimanjaro highlights that. So by the time this comes out, I'm more than likely will be on a plane again somewhere. 
starting that. <laughs> so I'll probably be listening to this in the like the last one I listened to in the you know in the airport lounge while uh-huh. waiting for a plane. <laughs> so it'll be the same thing. And you know, I like I said, like that is it. So every year it'll be a road to somewhere. The Nolly was just the beginning. And that's why I think that's why I say when I didn't make it up, if I would have made it up, I think that's it wouldn't have shown people, in my opinion. How do you come back from something when you're pushed back down? Like when people expect you to be something or do something and you try it, but the world has a different plan for you. How do you come back with the same, you know, motivation, aspirations, focus, determination as you did the first time? And I got really lucky that Denali said, I'm going to want you to go show that right now, Andrew. Go show what, as soon as I got home, I took one week to be with my friends and family. And then, you know what I did? I started training again, got right back to it, came right into like the training with my trainers, my coaches. I was like, this is our next plan. We have four mountains, three, those are three mountains, four volcanoes and two big waves to train for. And we have to do it in three weeks because I take off again. And they're like, what? And I was like, let's make sure we can do this again. I was like, Denali took us a year and a half, right? Let's condense it. Let's make sure we're on the same page and get in the program. And I was excited as soon as if someone picked me up right now and said, let's go do Denali again. I'm like, all right, let's do it. Let me get some, like, give me some Kit Kat, give me some Kit Kats and make sure to double. But that's, that is, you know, that's where I think that's my next thing is to really show that because I think, like you said, in this sport and outdoors, we see what it means to get to that feat, but there's a lot of, pushback and a lot of downtime and a lot of like failures that really show the human component of who and what we are. And um, I'm really grateful that my great grandmother and Denali really got to show me that because now the road to Kilimanjaro and the road to like the next ones after this, the other mountains and like volcanoes, it's going to be pretty fun. It's going to be way more fun than I planned it because I had a lot of time to sit in Denali and think about it. (laughs) And, uh, a lot of like so it's gonna be really cool and um going back to see the team that i climbed kilimanjaro with three years ago i get to actually help you know bd and i discuss like help getting them gear for we can stand together you know like i i climbed the mountain in walmart boots and you know things from like i couldn't like you know shoestrings and bubble gum put together and now to go back there and help the same people that gave me that will be very cool you know, to, to dive into really deep conversations on, you know, women's rights, child abuse, you know, world like pop pollution, water pollution, climate change from each part of the hemisphere is going to be very cool too. So that's, that's what's up for me next. It's, and, uh, Mallorca. <laughs> Mallorca. I didn't know if you were going to mention it. Mallorca. Like I said, scheming. There's been a little, there's been a little scheming going on. Scheming. Like, you know, like things like that, where I, I really want to take time to like my friends like you, like my family and just share the outdoor experience with them and other people, because that's the only way that I truly do think by doing it that way and what Denali gave me a second chance to really be like, go be that climber, the best mountaineer you want to become one day or big wave surfer or free diver that you want to be that you see every day when you see in the mirror. You're not competing against anyone else. You're competing against just that person in the mirror. So if you want to do it, here's your chance. Because I think if I would have gotten to the top of that mountain that day, I could have probably taken it for granted. And now I don't at all. Hey, my friend, always good to talk. And uh, thanks thanks for sharing. Um, I am confident we will uh, talk Where again very soon. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe you said it. I, I thought this was anyway. Yeah, you know. It's, no one knows what we're talking about. No so one really knows funny. what we're talking about. <laughs> but uh, yeah, man. Um, I look forward to our next conversation and... I look forward to the distinct possibility of (laughs) (laughs) meeting up with you in, you know, cool places. Good way to sound that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Hey, um, it's cool what you're up to, man. Please keep at it. 
please be smart with your training. But that's my way of saying, you know, watch the overtraining. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah, man. It's really cool watching this journey and getting to have the conversations that we have uh, to just hear about how things are coming together and the rest. And so, um, yeah, man, uh, always a pleasure. It's always great. And I'm glad you're safe. You're healthy, Jonathan. Like for me, like people like you just make it really fun and great. And I'm always great to like do that because you actually get this. It's you see the journey from how it's going, you know, a lot. Now, a lot. I think a lot of the time, just everyone like has noticed, like, I am a big fan. I love Jonathan platonically. I love him as a brother, family <laughs> member because we've, I don't know, you've talked to me what, at three different separate points in my life, you know? And actually these interviews have gotten funny and funner. If anyone's ever listened to the first one where I was like very like closed off and like shy, I've actually opened up the channel because we talked so much. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of just like opened up to be like this, but like, you know, so I appreciate that. And um, the other day I posted a photo of like all the people, like I didn't even get to do all the people, the people that are gravity to me in my life. Um, they really make sure that I stay grounded and you're one of them. I just can't post a photo of us when I take a photo on right. my laptop, just saying, but, um, I think, but those are, those are the people I think really get you to come back home and you think about when you're climbing because they want to see you be happy. They also want to spend time with you. Yeah. And I think any mountaineer, climber, alpinist, diver, surfer, outdoor enthusiast, you know, find your joy outside, but Always go to the edge, but make sure you can bring other people there to sit and sit and like eat lunch with you. Yeah, that's the key for me. But all right, my friend, appreciate you like always. Hey, talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to you soon. Bye. Okay, it is time now for our what we're celebrating this week segment. And I want to tell a story actually from a couple days ago. It was fairly late in the evening, and I was wrapping up the workday. So I sat down with a glass of Whistlepig 10-Year Rye with a cube because, you know, that's how I like their 10-Year Rye. And I turned on the Olympics and I watched two rugby matches. And the second match I really watched intently and it was Fiji versus New England. Now, here's the thing. I don't understand rugby at all. Now, in this championship match, Fiji beat New Zealand, and so I raised my glass to Fiji, and that's counting for what we're celebrating this week. But the other thing I want to celebrate is all the rocket scientists and apparently Mensa members who actually understand what the hell is happening in a rugby match. Because I swear, I was concentrating and trying to figure this out, and I have watched rugby matches in the past, And I'm just like, I honestly have no idea what's happening here or how any of the rules work or whatever. It was very humbling. I felt very dumb. And I just thought, I'm also going to raise a glass not only to Fiji, but to everybody who understands this sport. You all clearly are rocket scientists. It's a cool looking game. I just wish I had any idea what was going on. So this week we are celebrating Fiji and all you rugby loving geniuses out there. And that brings us then to the end of this episode of Gear 30. I want to say thanks to Andrew for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon. Bye, everybody.